Back in the early 1980s, there was a, a young couple in the Chicago area. And one of their children had a near-fatal accident. And this led the wife to begin to, to ask and seek answers to life's biggest questions. Who are we? Why are we here? Why, why is life so hard? Now, how am I to respond to the, uh, the trials and troubles of life? Where are things headed? What happens after we die? Now, the, the wife was starting to, to wrestle with all of these questions, and she eventually turned to the Bible for answers. Uh, and she eventually became a Christian. Her husband, who was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune uh, named Lee Strobel, he did not like his wife's newfound faith. And and so he set out uh, to disprove what she had begun to believe. He set out to to disprove the claims of Christianity, but by utilizing all of his uh, journalistic skills, he set out to, to prove specifically that there is no way Uh, that Jesus could have been raised from the dead. And and he rightly understood that that the resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. That that if Christ uh, has not been raised, uh, then then Christianity is false. And he would uh, be in agreement with the Apostle Paul there. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 17, the Apostle Paul said, If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. In verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But what's, what's amazing is that over the, the course of his in-depth investigation, Lee Strobel found that he could not disprove the claims of the Bible. Not only could he not uh, disprove the claims of the Bible, which he set out to do, he found uh, the evidence for the resurrection of Christ to be absolutely overwhelming. And it could not be ignored. And it brought him to this moment where he had to, to do something with all of his information, all of his research. He had to come to a conclusion. To either believe what all of this evidence points to or just blindly reject it. And ultimately, he too believed. Uh, He uh, put his faith in Christ, and his uh, testimony uh, is written about in his best-selling book, The Case for Christ. And some of you might be here today in the same way uh, that Lee Strobel and his wife were, coming to the Bible, coming to Christianity, maybe seeking to disprove it, uh, or seeking for, uh, for answers to life's biggest questions, uh, trying to make sense of the world around us. And I can encourage you that, that most of the people here have uh, had those moments. Uh, we've been in that wrestling match. Uh, we, we have fought in that ring trying to figure out who we are, why we are here, and, and where is life headed. And as each of us uh, began reading the Bible, we were asking uh, the meaning of all of these things. What is, what is all of this talk uh, about a cross and an empty tomb from 2,000 years ago. You know, why, did, why did the cross and an empty tomb matter in the first century? Why has it mattered every day since then? And why does it still matter today 
April 17, 2022. Now, there are not that many historical events that, that have a significance where they have mattered every single day since the time that they took place. But Jesus is going to answer those questions this morning. He's going to, uh, to address uh, why the cross matters. And we're just going to continue in our study of John's gospel. And I would uh, invite you to open up uh, your copy of God's word to, to John chapter 12. Uh, last week, as, as we studied uh, verses uh, 27 to 30, we saw uh, the shadow of the cross. Uh, we have come to the, the point where uh, we are in the, the final week of Jesus' life, uh, and uh, he is there in the city of Jerusalem, and uh, the reality of the cross uh, ha- has finally come. In chapter 12, verse 23, he said that his hour had finally arrived. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And after uh, speaking about uh, his death, he spoke about the necessity of uh, his disciples to to follow in that uh, same pattern uh, of death before life. And then in verses 27 to 30, we saw uh, the the shadow of the cross weighing upon Jesus. Uh, We saw that he uh, was greatly troubled, that he had become dismayed. And again, it wasn't because he was afraid of the physical torments of the cross. Uh, He was most concerned about being holy God and taking on sin, Uh, about uh, the Son, uh, the second member of the Trinity, being uh, uh, experiencing the the wrath of the first member of the Trinity, Uh, the Son experiencing the wrath of the Father. This is what Jesus is in turmoil about. In the verses that we're going to, to look at this morning, in verses 27 to 30, spoke about things leading up to the cross. Uh, verses 31 to 33 uh, speak about what's going to take place after the cross. Now, what the results of the cross will be. So we are moving beyond the shadow of the cross this morning. And I would invite you to, to look with me, beginning in chapter 12, verse 31. Jesus, in that same setting, says, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was about to die. And in these three verses, now Jesus is is speaking to this crowd. We don't know the exact setting, but it's more than likely uh, there in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, And he's speaking to this crowd about the implications of the cross. Uh, He's telling them what is going to happen as a result of him going uh, to be lifted up, to go and die on the cross. These are the things that will result. And as we study these verses, we're going to see that that the death of Jesus on the cross has different implications for different individuals. Uh, And these implications are going to show us why uh, the cross matters, not just in the first century, but also in the 21st century and every century in between. But what are these implications of the cross that that give it meaning across space and time? There are going to be four implications from this passage that that we get to to unfold this morning. And the first one is seen in that, that very first statement in verse 31. We can say that the cross means judgment for the world. Jesus exclaimed, now judgment 
is upon this world. Now, and he, he uses this uh, phrase, this, this singular word, now. And again, that refers back to the hour that has been long awaited. Now, that hour that we saw in chapter 12, verse 23. But, but what is it that Jesus is saying is happening uh, right then and right there? He says, now... Judgment is uh, the judgment of this world is taking place right here and right now. What does he mean by that? Because uh, Jesus is not uh, saying that he is immediately uh, this is not the the great white throne judgment uh, right then and there. It's obvious that Jesus didn't bring judgment upon uh, the unbelieving world at that time. So what is this speaking about? Uh, And when he says uh, that there is uh, judgment, he is speaking about uh, the trial of the unbelieving world. Now that he, uh, as the Son of God, entered into the world, and now the world is on trial. The, the Greek word for judgment there is crisis. Sounds familiar, right? Uh, in, in that moment of judgment, things are decided. That is the time uh, when determinations are made and when things are, uh, are separated out. When you make a judgment, you are separating out truth from falsehood. Now, you are making a determination. A crisis uh, moment is when there is a turning point uh, in the life of uh, an individual, uh, in the life of a people, and maybe in a, a city uh, or even a nation. And Jesus came into the world and he offered salvation from sin and peace with God the Father. Uh, and this is the moment now as he prepares to go uh, to the cross uh, that the world needs to respond Jesus has performed his miracles. He has proclaimed the truth. And now is the time for the world to respond. This is the crisis moment. It is the judgment of the world. And how the world responds is going to be a turning point either way. And again, this is, this is spoken on either Monday or Tuesday of the Passion Weekend. And Jesus is going to, to stand trial on Thursday night, and he's initially tried uh, by the Sanhedrin, uh, the ruling body of uh, the Jewish leaders. And then he will be condemned by them to death for blasphemy. But because they didn't want to get their hands dirty, they didn't want his blood to be on, on their hands, they say, hey, let's have the Romans kill him. So they, take, uh, they, they say that he's guilty in the middle of the night uh, after a nighttime trial. That's legal, right? They take him to uh, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, say, hey, we need you to execute this guy. Pontius Pilate is like, I don't really want to deal with this. Uh, so Pilate punts, and he, he sends him over to King Herod, who was the, the ruler of Galilee, where Jesus ministered for quite some time. And uh, King Herod is there in Jerusalem for the feast, and so Pilate sends him over to Herod, and Herod can't get anything out of him. Jesus just stands there without speaking. Uh, and so Herod sends him back over to Pilate. Now, Pilate, after hearing more testimony, and none of the eyewitnesses are agreeing on what the charges are against Jesus, Pilate says, this guy is innocent. Uh, But the Jewish leaders stir up the crowd and convince uh, Pilate that he needs to be crucified. Uh, And Pilate's on kind of walking on eggshells. He doesn't want a riot because if you're the governor and a riot happens in your turf, how does that look back in Rome? It's not good for you. So Pilate gives in to the demands of the crowd. He says, all right, even though I I know that this man is innocent, let's put him to death. Now, Jesus is the defendant in each of those trials that I just listed out. 
Before each of those rulers he stand and charges were brought against him. But in each one of those, it is not Jesus who is actually being judged. Those rulers are the ones who are actually under trial. They are the ones who are standing and they are the ones who will be judged according to their response to Jesus. And how did they respond? What did they do in this moment of judgment and crisis? They responded by crucifying an innocent man. Crucifying the one who was sent to save. And after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the apostles pointed this out repeatedly there in the city of Jerusalem as they preached. Now listen to what uh, the Apostle Peter says in Acts chapter 2. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. And put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. The apostle Paul speak or uh, Peter speaking to the to the Jews, you you used the Romans to crucify him, but you're guilty. Later on, Acts chapter three, Peter again preaching in the temple, he says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. And the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. The Apostle Peter points to the crucifixion of Jesus to to show uh, the the depth of rebellion, the depth of human sin. DeWitt Talmadge put it this way, when the world slew Jesus Christ, it showed what it would do with the eternal God if it could get its hands on him. In the crucifixion of Christ, The sinful world was passing judgment on itself. The cross is a demonstration of humanity's rebellion against our Creator. The cross is a barometer to show the lengths that we will go to be independent from God. What are we willing to do? We're willing to kill Him. And you and I might not have been there on that day. Say, well, what guilt can I have in this? But in our hearts, when we sin, what is it we are wanting? What is it we are desiring? No, we are in our hearts desiring to be free from our Creator. We are desiring to be free from any higher authority. We want what we want, when we want it, how we want it. We want to be God. And we want that so much that we are willing to kill God. God disappears In the moment of sin, right? We all become practical atheists in the moment of sin. And the cross is, in essence, a crisis moment for each and every one of us. 
How will we respond to it and what it proclaims about us? Do we acknowledge our sinfulness? Do we, do we approach the cross with humility and say, yet yeah, this is a reflection of my sinfulness? Or do we approach the cross continuing in our rebellious and prideful independence? The cross is a judgment for the world, showing us our sinfulness. That's the, the first implication of the cross. It means judgment for the world. But then Jesus makes another statement in verse 31. Another implication, another meaning of the cross. That the cross means defeat for Satan. Look at that second statement. He says, the, the first one, now judgment is upon the world. And he echoes, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And speaking of his hour of glory right now, and when Jesus speaks of the ruler of this world, he is speaking to Satan and about Satan. If we were to go back to God's original creation, God created man in his image as the pinnacle of his creation. And he told Adam and Eve to multiply and fill the earth. He told them to go and subdue the earth and exercise dominion over. That, that is kingship language. But then in the garden... Adam fell into sin. And when he fell, he in essence gave the, the, the keys of the, the world, his rights of rulership, he gave that over to Satan. And rather than humanity exercising dominion over the earth, Satan is now the, the power behind the scenes. Uh, and when Jesus comes now as the second Adam, which the New Testament makes clear, uh, he's going to be uh, the, the second head of humanity who is going to do what the first head, Adam, could not do. Jesus is coming to take back what Adam lost. He's coming to take what rightfully belongs to him. And Jesus' statement here that the ruler of this world will be cast out is kind of a negative way of saying that Jesus himself is going to acquire possession. All right? If the, the one who's ruling now is going to be cast out and Jesus is going to be the one who's doing the casting out, what does that mean? Well, he's the, he's the big man in town now. Uh, he is going to be the ruler. But we mustn't overlook the, the future tense of the verb here. Right? Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He doesn't say has been cast out. He, he, he's saying it's going to take place in the future. He's not saying that, that Satan is powerless uh, at this point in time. Now, only that, that Satan will be surely cast out because of what Jesus is going to accomplish on the cross. Satan is still active in this world. How do we know? Well, First Peter 5, 8 says that Satan is uh, going about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Uh, but he is fighting uh, as an already vanquished foe. His doom is sure. We read in Revelation 20 that, that Satan will be bound for a period of a thousand years and then he'll be uh, released and then uh, defeated again really quickly. Uh, and then he will be cast into the lake of fire. You can read Revelation 20 if you want the, the full details of that. But right now, he is on death row. Now, the, the cross is his verdict against him. Now, he is on death row uh, awaiting his final uh, judgment, but he is still fighting. He, he's still swinging. 
And Jesus is, is here holding up his cross uh, as the definitive conflict between he and Satan, the definitive battle uh, between good and evil takes place at the cross. It's a little bit like uh, the single combat battles that we see uh, in the Old Testament, most famously between who? David and Goliath, right? And then also you see it elsewhere in antiquity uh, in uh, the Iliad. You have Hector going out and fighting Achilles. But in, in single combat, the, the armies would gather together and then they would send out their, their greatest warrior, uh, they would send out a champion, and the two champions would, would fight, and uh, whoever came out on top, uh, their army w- was deemed to be victorious. And there is, there is an ironic twist in this cosmic battle that, that is invisible. It takes place at the cross. Uh, at the cross, Satan triumphs visibly, but Jesus triumphs invisibly. Well, what do I mean by that? It, it, Outwardly, as Jesus dies on the cross, it seems as if the powers of darkness. Later on in John's gospel, we're going to see that, that Satan is going to, uh, to possess and, and enter into Judas Iscariot. Now, the one who is going to uh, betray Jesus and lead to uh, his uh, arrest and his trial and ultimately his death. There is a demonic influence there. And, and Satan triumphs outwardly as Jesus dies on the cross. Right? And you can imagine uh, what uh, Saturday would have been like for the disciples, right? Now, the one that they had been following for, for three years, the one that they had become convinced was the Messiah and the Son of God, died. They're trying to make sense of that. How, what's going on? How can this be? You, know, you remember the, the two disciples that Jesus speaks to on the road to Emmaus. They, they are discouraged. Like the, this man that we were following, we thought he was the one, and he, he was executed. So how can he be the one? So outwardly, Satan seems to triumph. But Jesus is the actual victor in that battle. Colossians 2.15, speaking of the cross says he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over the, them in him, or actually in it, in the cross. Christ's victory on the cross gives us assurance of spiritual victory over Satan and over Satan's greatest weapon. Listen to what Satan's greatest weapon is. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Speaking of Jesus, that through death... He might destroy the one who has power over death. That is the devil. The the victory of Jesus on the cross assures us of victory over Satan and over death. Oswald Chambers puts it this way. All heaven is interested in the cross of Christ. All hell is terribly afraid of it. While men are the only beings who more or less ignore its meaning. We tend to, to skip right over the significance of Christ's victory for us on the cross. And because we are victorious through Christ, 1 Peter 5, 8 spoke about uh, Satan going about as a roaring lion. But listen to the next verse, 5, 9. It says, Re- resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
Yes, there is, there is suffering that we are going through, but we are able to resist Satan and all of his schemes. James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. And listen to this. And he will flee from you. Now, he will run from us. We stand firm, and he will turn tail and run. Ephesians 6 calls us to stand firm against the scheme of the devil, putting on the whole armor of God. Our victory is assured because of what Christ accomplished at the cross. Uh, That we are able to stand firm. We are able to be faithful because of what Jesus did. Uh, But but this doesn't mean that we get to to lie down and relax, right? Like I can just sit here, kind of go to sleep a little bit. Jesus' victory counts for me. Yes, it does. But what's the command? Stand firm. Resist. Don't give in. The cross means judgment for the world, and it means defeat for Satan. But then thirdly, the cross means death and glory for Jesus. If you look at verse 32 and then verse 33, it says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was about to die. Jesus gives a a conditional statement. If I am lifted up from the earth. And he was speaking about his own death. If he is lifted up from the earth. That's a a phrase that uh, is often repeated in John's gospel because it has a a double meaning. Jesus uses this word often because it can allude uh, both to his death and uh, to his glory. That he is able to, uh, to die and uh, be glorified all at the same time. Lifted up uh, refers literally to being lifted up off of the earth and figuratively of being uh, exalted and lifted up in rank and in honor. Uh, and for Jesus, the cross means uh, both death and glory. Now, the cross is the instrument of humiliation and death, and the cross lifted Jesus up from the earth, exposing him to all of the, the shame and humiliation hanging between earth and sky. But the cross is also the instrument of glory for Jesus. In heaven, the the saints in heaven in Revelation 5, uh, they they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Uh, The saints in heaven sing and praise Jesus as... The one who died. Revelation 5.12, singing with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The cross leads to Jesus' exaltation. uh, And we are to honor and worship Jesus as the one who was slain for us. uh, As the Lamb who was slain. We will be singing about that for all eternity. And that is what leads to the death of Jesus, but also to his glory. I was listening to a a podcast this week, and it it spoke about the political implications of the cross. It's like, I have not thought about that. This is going to be intriguing. What could the political implications of the cross be? It caught me off guard a little bit. And... uh, the, in the podcast that just talked about how uh, 
the, the cross is what, again, brings victory. And through the cross, Jesus is going to, to rule and reign uh, over uh, all peoples, over all the world. Philippians chapter 2 says this, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There are some political ramifications there. How many people will be under the lordship and the kingship of Jesus? That's, there are some exact numbers there, right? How many knees will bow? How many tongues will confess? Every. And Psalm 2 uh, un, unfolds that as well when it speaks about every political and, and human authority uh, will be overthrown by Christ, the Son, who is the King that God the Father has established. The death of Jesus on the cross leads to his glory, and it should lead to our praise of him and our adoration of him for all that he endured on our behalf. The cross means judgment for the world. It means defeat for Satan. It means death and glory for Jesus. And then, fourthly, there's a little statement at the end of verse 32. The cross means salvation for the world. Right? And Jesus had, had said, if I am lifted up from the earth, if he goes to the cross, if he is lifted up, what will happen? He says, then I will draw all men to myself. Now, a couple ways to, to think through this. Jesus will draw all men to himself. What, what does that mean? Is that literally every person without exception? Is this proclaiming uh, a, a universalism? No, that's not what, what Jesus is meaning here. Now, the, the all men who are drawn to Jesus is not speaking about all people without exception. It's speaking about all people without distinction. Again, think of the context. Jesus is there in the temple, and what prompted this, uh, this kind of dialogue and this teaching of Jesus that we are uh, kind of slowly working our way through, what prompted that is uh, Greeks coming and, and seeking Jesus. Uh, and think about the, the background of the, the Greeks. What, what are the Greeks known for prior to this? Plato, Aristotle, Socrates... Uh, they are known for building a life uh, on philosophy, upon human reason and human wisdom. But these Greeks are suddenly coming where? To Jerusalem, and they want to speak to Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, in essence, they are welcome. All people without distinction will be drawn to Jesus if he is lifted up on the cross. Because he died for all people without distinction. Men and women, young and old, Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, they are all welcome to turn to Jesus in faith. And being drawn to Jesus is a description of salvation. Now, the same word is used in John chapter 6, verse 44. That no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, and being drawn to Jesus is uh, implying a recognition that he is the Son of God who lived and died for sinners. Uh, it's an implication uh, of an agreement with him concerning who we are as sinners in need of a Savior. In John eight twenty four, 24, uh, Jesus uh, speaking to the crowd, he said, and to the Jewish leaders, said, I, I, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. But Jesus was lifted up in order to draw all men to himself so that the, whoever would look upon him would be forgiven uh, and reconciled with God. This is what, what Jesus said earlier in John's gospel, in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And yet, you might have noticed as, as we've gone through this passage, you're like, wait a second. Uh, you're saying that that the cross means salvation for the world, but the, the first point that I made was that the cross means judgment for the world, right? How, how can it be both all at once? How can a single event mean both judgment and salvation? You might say that, that the cross of Jesus is like a, a spiritual magnet. A magnet can be a, a powerful force uh, that draws uh, metal to itself, right? You got something, uh, if you have that, the drill gun, you're trying to drill something in behind uh, a dresser or, you know, in, a, in a, a small place. And if you have a magnetized tip on the end of that drill, it's wonderful, right? But if you don't, what happens? The screw falls down, you lose your sanctification somewhere. Uh, and you're like, where did I put that? I need, I need a magnetized drill bit. Now, a magnet can be a, a powerful force to draw metal to itself. But a, a magnet can also be a repelling force, right? Depending upon the, the polarity of that magnetized metal. Magnets can also uh, push away. And over and over again in John's gospel, we see this dichotomy that some people uh, are drawn to Jesus. Now, they come to him like a magnet. Uh, and other people are repelled and pushed away by Jesus. Uh, like their polarity is the exact opposite of his. They don't want to be around him. They want to do everything that they can to destroy him. And that is how the cross is both judgment and salvation all at once. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The Apostle Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's that dichotomy, right? Some people look at the cross and say, that's pure foolishness. Others look at it and say, wow, this is the power of God. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, speaking about Christians. It says, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So there is a, a fragrance and an aroma to us. Did you realize that this morning when you were getting ready? That you have an aroma 
as a Christian. But people smell you differently. Verse 16 says, To the one, an aroma from death to death. And to the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? That's what we have to begin to realize. Uh, the, the, the spiritual magnet of the cross gives us uh, an aroma. Gives an, an aroma to us, and we don't know how we're going to smell to others. To some, we're going to smell wonderful. We're going to smell like life. To others, we're going to smell like death. All of this comes from the cross. But there's another theme here in this little statement as well. That if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. What Jesus is saying is that all those who are saved are going to be saved in the exact same way. Through faith in Jesus and in his atoning death. Okay, Jesus is going to be that spiritual magnet. And all of those who are saved, all of those who are uh, reconciled with God the Father are going to be drawn to Jesus and his atoning death. There is no other salvation to speak of. There is only one way. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And Jesus himself said a little bit later in John's gospel, chapter 14, verse 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He says, no one comes to the Father but through me. If you have trusted in Christ, if you have been drawn to him, then we get to rejoice this morning and every morning. Because we are uh, forgiven in him. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. That means we we can approach God uh, without a sin debt. Uh, We approach God without all of the the baggage and the burden of sin. Uh, And we approach God with all of the righteousness of Christ. Christ took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. That is what we get to rejoice in. But if you're here this morning and you're still trying to make sense of all of this, I would encourage you, keep trying to make sense of all of this. Uh, Keep searching, keep seeking, Uh, turn to Scripture. Uh, If you have questions, come speak with me. Come uh, speak with the person who invited you this morning. I would would greatly encourage you, continue to, to seek out those answers. And look to Christ in faith. The cross means defeat for Satan. The cross means death and glory for Jesus. The cross means both judgment and salvation to the world. But these truths about the cross are all validated by the resurrection. See, Jesus merely dying on the cross is not impressive. There were thousands of men who were crucified by the Romans. And that's not really that impressive. It's it's sad, it's grievous, but but crucifixion in Roman times was common. And merely dying does not prove any of the things that Jesus is saying here. Right? He He can talk a big talk leading up to his death, and then if he died and that was it, That would be it, right? But Good Friday is not meaningful without Resurrection Sunday. 
And the empty tomb on that Sunday morning, as we read in Matthew 28, uh, that empty tomb is what proves everything that Jesus said. Uh, The empty tomb on that Sunday morning uh, proves all of the works and all of the words of Jesus to be 100% true. And without the resurrection, they would all be in doubt. The resurrection is, is the receipt the proof of purchase uh, that, that proves all of these implications of the cross have been uh, accomplished by Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, who later on and, and went among the Greeks, he comes to the city of Athens. If you, if you have your Bibles, turn over with me to, to Acts chapter 17. Paul w- was there in Athens, and he's speaking to a... a group of Greek philosophers on, in a location known as the Areopagus, or Mars Hill. And he, he begins to, to speak and, and to reason with them, and he, he introduces God as the one who has uh, created all people. And in verse 30, kind of in, in conclusion to, to his, his message and, and, and his dialogue with the philosophers, he says this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everyone everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. The Apostle Paul, in in speaking with the the philosophers, he says, uh, all of these claims that I'm making are are verified by the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, And you know that Jesus is the one whom the the creator God that we all must recognize. Uh, God is going to judge the world through him. And it's demonstrated by the fact that God raised him from the dead. Who else has God raised from the dead after being uh, in the tomb for three days? No one. The resurrection is the proof of Christ's victory. It is the evidence that he is the one appointed by God to judge the world. So Paul, Paul is proclaiming this, right? He speaks the truth. But then notice the response, right? Remember, Jesus and, and the cross are like a spiritual magnet. They draw some and repel others. And look at to the, the response. Verse 32. Now, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead... Some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. And in this way, Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed among them, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagate, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So Paul preaches and proclaims the resurrection. And what's the response? They sneer, Right. What oftentimes happens when you speak to a neighbor or a co-worker or a family member about the resurrection of Jesus? Sometimes how do they respond? They sneer. You're not the only one. But we should at times expect that response. But, but on the other hand, some people are going to be repelled by the cross. Some people are going to be uh, repelled by the resurrection. They're going to doubt it. They're going to refuse to believe. Some doubt and some sneer, but what else does it say here? When, when Paul proclaimed the resurrection, 
said, we shall hear you again concerning this. And in verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, and among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite. Now, he was one who was from Mars Hill. He was a philosopher. Some sneer, but some come to faith in Christ. Some are pushed away. Some are drawn. And here's what we are called to do, to proclaim, just as the Apostle Paul did. Uh, we are called to, uh, to show who Jesus is and what he has done. How he proclaimed and predicted his own death on the cross. How he proclaimed and predicted his own resurrection from the dead. The question is, will we proclaim this? But also, will we ourselves be drawn to Jesus or will we be repulsed by him? The cross is the crisis moment for each and every one of us. Now, the cross presents a decision for each of us. Will we look to Jesus in faith? Or will we go and continue to trust in our own understanding and in our own ways? And there's tremendous consequences no matter what we decide. Right? We, we have to come to a decision. Uh, and that decision will, will set you on a trajectory for all of life and all of eternity. But, but Christ beckons for everyone, all people, everywhere. Right? Those are exact numbers the Apostle Paul used. That everyone everywhere should repent and look to that man, that one whom God the Father resurrected from the dead, Jesus Christ. If you have questions about that, I would love to speak with you afterwards. Uh, if you have already placed your faith and trust in Christ, and this is a day of great rejoicing and celebration uh, as we remember uh, who Jesus was and what he did for us. Amen? We can continue to, to sing to him, but let's go to him again uh, in praise.